Matthew chapter 5 and first verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, satisfied. The human soul is longing for satisfaction. And when we understand that satisfaction is only found in God, that's what happens when we meet him, the longing of our soul from that moment onwards is a sure sign that God is at work in your life. Even to the point, uh, and I heard this point being made by a great preacher by the name of Timothy Keller recently, and this is what he said. Your distance from God is a sign of his nearness. Now that sounds a little bit paradoxical. Let me explain it to you. When you've met God, you long for him and you can never be close enough. You always want to get closer and closer. And it's that sense of distance that you want to bridge, you want to be closer to him and draw closer to him. That sense of distance and desire to draw closer to God is proof that you're born again. It's proof that God's at work in your life. Today, I want you to learn how to deepen your spiritual hunger and your thirst for God and to point you towards the total satisfaction, as Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they shall be satisfied. Point towards this total satisfaction that you can find in him and only in him. So we're talking today about your spiritual hunger. Are you hungry today? Are you thirsty for God? Are you craving for him? A yearning after God, a longing for God, for God, not the good life, but the God life. So many people today are hungering and yearning, and even in their religious attitude, they are looking for God, but not for himself. They're looking for God to do what they want him to do to make their life better. Many people start seeking God because they think that if God really is a, is a God of love, then he's going to give me what I want. He's going to give me a better life. That's not the Gospels, we shall see. The kind of hunger that Jesus is talking about is not a hunger for the blessings of this world. They have a place, but they are second things. The hunger that Jesus is talking about is a hunger for God himself and a, a deep, a deep, intense Hunger, you might almost describe it as an extreme hunger. In New Testament times, they didn't have, as we do or think we do, three square meals a day. Many of them wouldn't get three square meals a week. And sometimes 
they would go a whole week without having a proper meal. But when that meal time came, you didn't have to be called, come, dinner is ready. You would already be there. In France, we say, à table, s'il vous plaît, à table, tout le monde, to the table, everybody, everything's ready. You wouldn't have to say that. They would already be gathered, hungering, waiting in anticipation. So the hunger and thirst that Jesus is talking about is far more than the hunger pangs you feel at 12 noon because you missed your breakfast or the snack that you want in between meals. It is such a deep hunger that you come almost to the point where it is the most important thing. Right now, whatever else I do, I've got to eat. No, no, I've really got to eat. That exists in our nation. It exists in our city. Over the past 15 months and more, we've been regularly ministering to our local community through the food hub. You've donated foods, um, non-perishable food. Others have given cash gifts and we've supplied food to people who are hungry and in need of it and sometimes in extreme need of it. We've met people who've come to the food hub who haven't eaten in days. That's the kind of hunger we're talking about, but in a spiritual sense. Let me now introduce you to a man who knew what it was to be spiritually hungry. So hungry that God was the only passion of his life. His name is David and has written many of the Psalms in the Old Testament, including Psalm 63. I want to read verses 1 to 8. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 63, please. This is David speaking. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, and your right hand upholds me. Have you ever been so busy in your working day that you've forgotten to eat lunch? Some of you might say, lunch? What's that? How long are you allowed for your lunch break? And how important is it to you anyway? But the point that I'm making is that sometimes in the natural realm, busyness can make you forget to eat. I know what that's like. I'm working uh, flat out and my mind is totally absorbed in what I'm doing. And Amanda says, come on, you've got to eat something. I say, why? She said, well, you haven't eaten since breakfast. Well, anyway, thank God for good wives. 
But my point is this, is that as in the natural, so in the spiritual, we can become so busy with all the demands of daily life, and there are many, and they're being heaped upon us almost daily, especially now that we think that the lockdown might go on for a little bit longer. So many pressures, and we're so busy. Sometimes our busyness is, is what, what we think is anyway, is about God's business. I find this in the Christian ministry, that busyness can actually crowd out God's presence if you're not careful. Another scenario, uh, let me put it this way. So, okay, you've been at work all day and you've just finished and it's gone on a bit late and you're on your way home. On your way home, you come to Paddington Station. You have to make that walk from one part of Paddington to the other part of Paddington to catch your train home. And as you walk, you smell something. I don't know what it might be for you, but I can tell you it may be McDonald's or it may be KFC. And you think, oh, I'm so hungry. I'll just pop in for a snack. And you eat that and you think that's fine until you get home and you find you have no appetite for your evening meal. No disrespect for McDonald's or for KFC or any other fast food. But as in the natural, so in the spiritual, junk food can put you off your real spiritual appetite. And so also we know that certain things can affect your appetite if you're not feeling well. The first thing that goes is your appetite. What's the matter with you? You're off your food. Or if you're going through some kind of deep emotional turmoil, um, your, your emotions are heightened. Maybe you've received some bad news. Maybe you've had some kind of situation that has stirred you up emotionally. Very often, your appetite goes under such circumstances. So in the spiritual realm, many things can impede our appetite. But today, we're going to talk about how to sharpen it and how to deepen it. And this begins, in my mind, with a fact. It's logical, so listen to it. It says this, your need for God can only be satisfied by God. So in the natural, your need for food can only be satisfied by food, your need for something to drink can only be satisfied by some liquid. And so in the spiritual realm, your need for God can only be satisfied by God. Here that's so simple, it's so obvious, but we miss it. Let me ask you, you say amen to that, my need for God can only be satisfied by God. But how much time this week have you spent pursuing Him and Him alone as the answer, not just to that need, but that need which is the deepest need of your life. Now, this idea of spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst, I have a book um, kind of bubbling up in me, which maybe I'll get to one time, and it'll be a book written to the wider market, 
to people who don't yet know Jesus, entitled, the working title at the moment is Thirst for Spirit. Because I notice everywhere, publications, uh, YouTube videos, all kinds of blogs are talking about spirituality. There is a huge interest in spirituality today. Now, if we predicted that 25 years ago, they would have called us crazy because it wasn't supposed to happen. The secularism, the humanism, the atheism amongst the intellectual elite was supposed to push out any desire for God. Uh, and it wasn't going to happen. We were going to get more and more secular. Actually, our nations have become more and more religious. In this sense, there is a deeper hunger for spiritual things and a hunger for spirituality more than globally, more than any time in history. So what has happened? What is happening? I heard recently that um, if you put the title soul in the title of your book, it will sell 10% or 50% more copies than if the word wasn't in the title. I'm talking about the secular market. So much interest. So what's going on? We can call it the God-shaped hole. Um, and the people who don't know Jesus will have some vague awareness that there must be something more. And they'll go and seek that something more. And in many ways, there is a thirst for spirit. But there is a very important caveat to this when you understand Bible teaching. Yes, there is a thirst for spirit. There is a desire for spirituality, which is an all-time high. It is a billion-dollar industry across the nations of the world. But the caveat is this. Because of the natural state of the human heart, we will seek for God everywhere where he cannot be found. There is this inbuilt rejection of the God of the Bible. We, we don't want him. It's anything but the Bible. ABB mentality or ABC mentality. Anything but Christianity. Why is that? The Bible shows us that actually the human heart in its natural state is highly resistant to God and highly antagonistic to God. Why that might be, of course, the sinful condition of the human heart. But you see, what we want to preserve in all our spirituality is the kingdom of self. We're far happier to try and commune with what we're told are angels, but are actually very often demonic spirits, in order to feel we've got some contact with the spiritual realm. And the Bible says that every spirit that does not confess that Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. So people are going to broken water wells, to brackish waters, which have nothing in them that can satisfy, and trying to find soul satisfaction, spiritual satisfaction in the things that can never satisfy. I've discovered that many people who say they are seeking God, they want peace without God, not peace with God. All that changes in the rebirth. 
Jesus said, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven, but kingdom of God. When you are born again, you begin to see God. And when you see God, you begin to desire him. Any desire you have in your heart to search the one true and living God is a result of the fact that God has already found you and changed you. That's a given. I'm looking around at a whole bunch of lovers of God. And that's not measuring you by your performance this week spiritually. But that is telling you what God tells you about you. That deepest part of you, the truest thing about you. Right now, as you sit here, as you watch this, you are a lover of God. There's something that God has put in you that causes you to move in his direction, to turn away from the things that displease him and to seek him above everything else. I said before that many people, when they think they're seeking God, actually what they're doing is seeking to get from God. And they're saying, God, if you really, are, if you really love me, you'll give me what I want because your, your, your desire is my happiness because you're supposed to be this good, loving God. And actually you've missed it all because nothing that God provides you will satisfy for himself or substitute for himself. So what I want to do today is to whet your appetite. Now, I don't know if you know what that expression means. Uh, well, I'm sure you know what it means, but where it comes from. What do you mean to whet your appetite? Does it need to get damp? What, is, what does this mean, to whet it? Well, wet is an old English word for sharpening, sharpening. Um, so uh, I love cutting vegetables and things with a sharp knife. And so before I do anything in the kitchen, put on my chef's outfit, no, probably just my apron, I sharpen the knife. I take the sharpening stone, I know the precise angle, 45 degrees, and I sharpen it. That's wetting the knife. That's sharpening the knife. I want to sharpen the cutting edge, the blade of your appetite to God. And Jesus gives us this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You can see the hope that is in there. And it only begins when you've met God. A lot of people think, I've been seeking God and I found him. No, he's been seeking you. And when he's found you, then you really know what it is to seek God. David puts it like this, Psalm 63, verse one. He says, oh God, you are my God. That's the starting point. The starting point of spiritual desire is to know God. If you don't know him, you don't even desire him. And any sense of seeking the true and living God is the result of God working in your life. Oh God, you are my God, therefore I will seek you. So the first thing is to get to know God. Call upon him. Ask him to introduce himself to you, meet him. And once you've met him, you desire him and you will never be the same again. And also the more you know of him and experience of him, the more you desire him. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
And sometimes, you know, you don't get a taste for something until you've actually tasted it. I remember years ago, Mandra and I, with some other people from KT, were in Israel. And um, there we sat by the shores of the Red Sea. And um, in that place, what they served with every meal, before even asking you, they bring some bread and some olives. And a couple of meals passed and didn't touch the olives. And uh, somebody said, don't you like olives? No. Have you tried one? No. Try one. Well, I don't know if it was the very special olives, sun-kissed and blessed by God in Israel, or whether it was just the actual olive itself. But I can tell you this, I tasted. I loved it. And from that day to this, olives are still a favorite of mine. It's the same with having an appetizer. What's an appetizer? It's there to increase your appetite. It's to prepare you for the main course. If you've been a guest in somebody's home and they brought out food, you know, you would be wise to discern if it's the appetizer or the main course. I've been embarrassed on nearly all the continents of the earth by eating the appetizer as if it was the main course, thinking that's all there was and I better get on with it. But the appetizer called many things, starter, canapé, first course, finger food, titbit, hors d'oeuvre, amuse-bouche, antipasto, snack, or in Nigeria, swallow. Now, some Nigerians are saying, I don't know what that means. Well, you, have, you weren't where I was with Mama Kemi, consummate Nigerian lady. And we were in Lagos and I came in with something to eat. Uh, what, what, oh no, the, the kitchen isn't open. Well, what can you offer us? We can offer you some swallow. Swallow? Mama Kemi said, swallow, what's this? Swallow. Maybe in that part of Lagos, maybe in that hotel, maybe only in that woman. Swallow was a snack. Pick it up, small, you just swallow. I mean, not enough even to chew. Swallow. The reason for swallow, antipasto, first course, is to increase your appetite in anticipation of what is to come. So, how to sharpen your appetite? I've got three, three points here. Let me read them to you at the beginning. Don't worry about trying to take it down or anything. We'll come back to them. But here we go. First point is this. The desire for something truly good is far more satisfying than the attainment of something that can never satisfy. The desire for something truly good is itself, the desire itself is far more satisfying than the attainment of something that can never satisfy you. Second, God is the ultimate good and the only source of real satisfaction. And number three, your desire for God causes you to hunger and thirst for the right things. Jesus said, bless those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and they shall be filled. Let's look at those briefly one by one. You know, there's something in anticipating something that is so pleasing. Um, maybe you are anticipating a football match and all the preparation going to it is for us that sitting down in front of the television watching the uh, group stages of the Euros right now. 
Or maybe it's you at home planning your summer holiday. It may be a staycation, because at the moment, you know, travel overseas seems a bit out, or maybe you'd just be happy with a weekend off. But when you have some time off, time to yourself, you, and you begin to anticipate it, you know that, that feeling, that excitement? That's satisfying. It's not the whole deal, but it, it, it's satisfying. It's a nice experience going on a journey, preparing for the journey. It can be a nice experience. And of course, the thing is with holidays and vacations and even football matches, your anticipation may actually not be fulfilled. Your team can lose. The holiday can be ruined by the weather, by bad transport or a bad booking. You can't guarantee that. But when it comes to spiritual matters, Jesus says, you can count on this, hunger and thirst for God and his righteousness, and you will be satisfied. End of story. It will happen. You know you will never be disappointed. Right now, what we see of Jesus is only partial, but yet we love him, we desire him, we enjoy him in the present, but we know that nothing in the present is worth comparing with what it will be on that day when we see him face to face. In fact, the whole of your Christian life is to build anticipation of what it will be like to see him face to face in heaven, perfected in heaven. That is unimaginable and only very, very partially glimpsed and experienced here on earth. What does that mean? Sounds like a good thing to say, but realize what it means. It means you're never going to be fully satisfied till you see Jesus. Many of the things that you think you want and the disappointments of life where it hasn't worked out as you wanted, if that's what you're living for, you're going to live and die a very disappointed person. But you can put up with all the disappointments that life throws at you. Confident of this one thing, when you see Jesus face to face, you're going to be satisfied. Secondly, the only good is God. The only ultimate good is God. And the only source of real satisfaction is God. Philosophers down through the centuries from the Greeks, the early Greeks, the ancient Greeks, right up until the present day, have pondered this question, not just for centuries, but millennia. What is the highest good? The highest goal that we can have in life. Many of them said it was such things as pleasure, satisfaction, a few added to it, virtue, self-discipline, and they combined it together. And that's all the way through the history of thought. But then along comes a man, his name is Augustine, one of the great theologians of the very early church. And he said to the Greeks, yes, you're right, pleasure, absolutely, but actually you need to know that the only real satisfaction, the only real lasting and eternal pleasure is being united with God. And that idea has developed in Christian theology down through the years to the point of not so long ago when a bunch of theologians 
in Westminster. That's not um, Westminster as in the government. God knows they could do with more of this there. But the Westminster theologians got together and made a statement saying this. The chief purpose, the highest goal in life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we can say amen to that, all right? But what about your idols? We can say yes, we believe that, and many of us do with our heads, but in our hearts, we wake up every day pursuing everything else other than God, thinking that somehow they will take the place of God and God can be an add-on in our life. It's the exact opposite. God and seeking Him and His righteousness and holiness is the first thing, and the other things are second things. And that comes from a deep desire, knowing that only God can satisfy. So I've dealt with some philosophers. Let me quote you a poet, a poet, an English poet, Robert Browning from the 19th century, a great period of romantic poetry. But this man was not known just for his dramatic monologues and uh, his high-level poetry, but also for his irony. Listen carefully to this, because there is a kick in this tale. Let's watch and listen. Here's the poem. Are you ready? It's short. Let's go. All the breath and the bloom of one year in the bag of one bee. All the wonder and wealth of the mine in the heart of one gem. In the core of one pearl, all the shade and shine of the sea. Breath and bloom, shade and shine, wonder, wealth, and how far above them, truth that's brighter than gem, trust that's purer than pearl, brightest truth, purest trust in the universe, all were for me in the kiss of one girl. Hmm. Are you serious? Are you telling me that everything that is good and glorious and wonderful in the universe can be found in a single kiss? What planet are you on, man? I've got to say, that's got to be some almighty kiss. Let me tell you, there is an almighty kiss. The kiss of God will do it. No kiss of a girl or a boy or any relationship will do it. Only relationship with God. Give Jesus a big praise in the house. <laughs> Augustine, in his statement about the ultimate end or goal of life, was this. Very often quoted, our heart is restless until it rests in you. That's amazing, isn't it? Now the third point, your desire for God causes you to hunger and thirst for the right things. I've been speaking a whole lot about desiring God, but Jesus actually says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now he, he's contracting something there, putting something together. What he's saying is this, if you hunger and thirst for God, 
and make the pursuit of God the highest purpose and priority of your life, the biggest passion of your life, then one thing will immediately follow. You will meet God and meet him. You will desire him and immediately you will want to be like him. The whole of the Bible is predicated on this. What does it say about meeting Jesus? When we see him, we shall be like him because we see him as he is. And at that point, you've stopped searching God or seeking God for the things he can give you. You're searching for God that you might become like him. To love him and love him for himself and to love the things he loves and hate the things he hates and to please him. To be like him. When the Holy Spirit comes into a service, what do we feel? We feel God and we say, I want to be like him. And God, the Holy Spirit, helps us. When we share fellowship together, we lift up Christ and we look at Jesus together with songs of hymns and spiritual songs and the messages and the words that we give. It's all about Jesus and all about our desire to be like him. And Jesus sums up God-likeness in this one word, righteousness. At the very middle and in fact, all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, it is about being like Jesus, being like God. You will hear in my testimony shared today that I was turned around by the statement put in the lips of Jesus, Colin, do you want to be like me? And I did, and I do, and I'm so far from that. But my distance from that goal and the sense of the distance of God from my soul is evidence that God is there and is working in my life. Amen and amen. So, when you develop your spiritual appetite, you can come to the place where you are so attracted to God that He is the strongest attraction, the strongest pull on your life, pulling you away from all that stuff that can never satisfy, pulling you towards the heart of the one who is life himself. You can sharpen your appetite to the point that you are as attracted to God as birds are to water, sheep to pasture, and magnets to metal. I cling to you. Have you experienced God? The way that you answer that is to say, do I really hunger and thirst for spiritual things and want God's will manifested in my life? Notice how these opening Beatitudes, the blessed attitudes, build and take you to higher levels. First of all, poverty of spirit. I have absolutely nothing. As far as my relationship with God is concerned, I am spiritually bankrupt. And I feel that so keenly that I mourn. I'm sorry, not for myself, I'm sorry for my sins. And I'm comforted. 
And in that I walk humbly and meekly, knowing that I've got nothing to boast about, but everything to desire and to go after. That's when the spiritual hunger and thirst kicks in. So I say to you, follow your new appetite, sharpen it, know where it comes from, it's the gift of God. Don't waste your time on junk food. Don't forget to feed spiritually in church services, in the word, in fellowship, in prayer. And don't make your prayers all about gimme, gimme, gimme. Make your prayers mostly about God, drawing closer to God, knowing God, enjoying God. And from time to time, God will give you such an experience of him that you will say, nothing on earth compares to you and it is good for me to be with God. What do you want? The good life or the God life? <laughs> 